Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. And welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show. It is episode number 30. And we start at this point, we'll do our introductions in a moment with an apology because we promised we would be on the Isle of Arran and bringing you the sights and sounds and smells of that wonderful place. But as you'll have gathered, we're still in our studio in Staffordshire. Can't you hear the sea? Yeah. No, you can't. <laughs> you might hear the cat later, but uh, she's, uh, I think, with middle she, one one of the ill boys that we have upon us. She is indeed. She's she uh, earlier this morning, about two hours ago, actually. She asked to go in there, and I haven't seen her since. So right there we go. Anyway, our we'll, COVID uh, carrier. <laughs> absolutely, we'll, we'll we'll fill you in on the details in a moment. But let's let's do our formal introductions. My name is Adrian Hobart, and um, my name is Rebecca Collins. Together, we run Hobeck Books. And that's a UK independent publisher of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. Suspense. That was my attempt at some sort of Scottish accent. Mine was a frog in my throat. <laughs> well, that's understandable. Because <coughs> I actually do have one. <laughs> no, I mean, this is this is the week we've had. So we should be in Aaron. We should have caught the ferry last night. And we should be enjoying our first morning down on the uh, the waterfront at Kildonan, on the <laughs> southern tip of the island, overlooking the Ailsa Craig. But we're stuck in Staffordshire. And the reason is that COVID has, after 18 months of vigilance or however long it's been, uh, you know, wearing masks and washing hands and kids have been in and out of school and they, we've managed to dodge it up to this point. But unfortunately, COVID has reached into the Hobeck world. And two of our boys here, uh, Luke, who's 17, and Josh is 15, both tested positive in midweek. Uh, we already knew they had something. Mm. Uh, they were not well. Uh, but then we had the uh, PCR tests done. And, yeah, it's true. They had COVID. So, so instead of drive through McDonald's, we did a drive through PC... oh. PCR test. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've done the test. And yeah, it, it, 24 hours later, we were informed it was positive. So we're not only... You know, not on holiday. And unfortunately, we just cannot rearrange this thing at this stage because, you know, there isn't enough summer holiday. There are other reasons why we can't. Hospital appointments, uh, studio being installed here, that kind of stuff. Uh, we just simply can't get away. And it's uh, it's been a blow. It's been a really difficult time. So we're stuck in the house, as you'd expect. With we, each other. With each other. Three of us <laughs> still haven't got it. Um, but... I had a bad night last night. I had a headache and I was coughing a bit. And who knows, I might have it now. Um, but we've lived with this sort of tightrope walk 
effort. The boys have been really good at staying in their rooms, and that's really, really tough. They've basically been imprisoned, effectively. Yeah, I've I've got a lot of respect for them because they've they've done so well, uh, especially Luke. I mean, he does sit on his landing, wrapped in his duvet, occasionally just to have some human contact. Yeah, yeah, you've been playing Trivial Pursuit, socially distanced. Yes. Things like that. We, we've developed a system to yeah. play games. Uh, look, so they've the mix of disappointment uh, that they they can't help but feel guilty that they're responsible for cancelling the holiday. Uh, which is not their fault at all, of course. Um, but you know, it's been you know we're, we're living in this situation where if I get it, I'm diabetic, uh, and let's be honest, I'm a big, big bloke. You know, I it, it, before vaccinations, I would have been a prime target for the for the thing to put me in hospital, um, and it may yet do that if I catch it. At the moment, I don't think I've got symptoms, but at the same time, I've got a sore throat just this minute. It could be, you know, who knows why that is. Um, I've had a bit of sniffle this morning. You know, any sign that there might be something wrong, we've amplified into, oh, my God, we've got it. But we've been doing this all week, haven't we? You and I especially, because I had, the night before last, I fell asleep really quickly. And I woke up a few minutes later and thought, oh, I must have COVID then. I never fall asleep that quickly. Yeah, twice this (laughs) week I've had to get a bit early, you know, in the afternoon or whatever, because I felt really fatigued and, and, and a bit achy. And you're thinking, oh, I've got it. And so you've got that tightrope walk. You've also got to try and keep the morale and spirits. You've got to keep them fed. We've got to. We've had logistic issues in trying to, you know, make sure that we've got supplies for the cat and, every, and everybody else. We ran out of diet coke, which was a disaster this week. And uh, celery. And celery and all sorts. Uh, fortunately, your sister is is doing the shops for us at the moment. She's just emerged from isolation as well. Uh, and it's the thought that you know we can't even go outside. Really, the builders are out the back. Uh, working on the manor house, you know, our uh, barn uh, backs onto it. We don't want to give it to them. Uh, we've really kept the doors locked to the house. Poor little Toby, he's 11 years old, full of energy, full of beans, and he's been stuck indoors for all this time, but he's been uncomplaining about it. It's been amazing. Actually, yeah, he's been really good. He did say to me one morning, he said, oh, at least I could go for a bike ride. And I said, I'm sorry, Toes, you can't even go for a bike ride. And he went, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Yeah. And you just accepted it. Absolutely. And then the mental impact. You know, we had longed for this holiday. We've needed it. Look, you and I have been in a family unit for less than three years. Um, We only really got together three years ago. So, um, Well, actually, it's coming up to fall, but. Is it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Look, I've lost count. But anyway, it's, 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 we've never had a holiday as a group before. Uh, clearly, the pandemic paid, put pay to that. And, uh, you know, I, I booked this beautiful place in Aaron. Um, okay, it was fairly last minute, but, uh, you know, getting the last ferry tickets and all that stuff. A lot of, lot of hopes and, and um, well, we need this holiday. It's as simple as that. I, I'm sure you can empathise. Look, there are a lot of people who've been touched by COVID in a much, much worse way than us. But for this week, it's been really tough because we know that we're going into really running the, the, the business for another year without the prospect of a break from it. And, uh, much as we love running Hobeck, you do need downtime sometime, um, and that isn't going to happen. Yeah, um, it's just it's just to. In fact, it makes you more productive if you have these periods of downtime. And I I know I know this, and even though I don't follow it always, <laughs> it is very true that you have a t- you have time off, and then when you get back into it, you are much better. You have more energy. Your brain is work- functioning much better, especially if you've been able to do something completely different with your brain for a few days. Yeah, so we need to do something, but we haven't got the opportunity. So, 
no point whinging about it. I mean, we'll get that off our chests in this this edition of the Hubcast and, <laughs> and move on. Well, I think we've done quite a bit of whinging between ourselves, haven't we? But yeah, we've it had... actually, I think that's an important part of the process. You have a whinge. You feel sorry for yourself. You sort of lick your wounds a little bit and then you come through it and say... Yeah, it's been a bit of a grieving process, if I'm honest. Yeah. Because, you know, we invested a lot of hope in it. And, um, you know, after all that effort to keep COVID at bay... It, it, it's 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 hit us and um you know we won't go into the circumstances of how we got it but uh there we go it, yeah it is it is annoying isn't it because you put so much effort into keeping it away uh, yeah i mean i have to i was actually quite proud of the fact that we'd managed to escape it so far yeah and i i, I you know uh, being honest with you i mean i've got my boys my two boys uh live 50 odd miles away up uh, near stockport in in the peak district and uh, they've moved house in that time. They've had t- their birthdays as well. I've missed those. And what is already a distant relationship in, in some ways, you know, we're very close, but at the same time physically distant, has been a lot worse. And it will be, if things don't improve and if any of us get COVID, three of us who are uninfected get it in the next few days, then I won't see my boys for over a month. And that's too much for me. Mm. Um, it was bad enough during lockdown, but I, I I just can't deal with it. If I'm honest, it gets me. I'm getting yeah, yeah I know. You can probably hear it in my voice. I think it, 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 it's frustrating for you because it's beyond your control. Yeah, and, and that is very very hard on you. So you know, I do feel a lot of empathy for you in this situation. But yes, I think we better move on because we don't want to get too no, maudlin. No, okay. Look, the, the, we've got some big Hobeck news for many of you who contact us and ask us when we're going to reopen submissions. We're going to do it for a limited period. We're going to open them in September, September only uh, for the foreseeable future. I mean, one of the reasons for this is, look, we have 17 fan- fabulous authors already signed to Hobeck as it stands. And uh, when we set up the company, we expected to, within two years, build a list of, say, 20. That was, if I'm honest, a mm. number that we plucked out of the air at the time. But um, that's pretty much how it's worked out. And... Uh, you know, we envisage not getting a lot bigger than that at this stage of our, our development. We've said that before. Uh, but having said that, we do think it's time we took a look at what's around. And a lot of people have been waiting to to submit to us. So um, there will be an opportunity in September. We'll only keep it open for a month and it will probably shut for uh, a good Until few months. Until the next year, yeah. Absolutely. So we have some opportunities to publish with us in the beginning of the first, let's say the first half of 2022, um, looking at our schedule, uh, there are opportunities. But, uh, you know, we should, <laughs> the, the rules of submission are very straightforward. First three chapters, a synopsis and a covering letter, and uh, we'll take it from there. Um, so we look forward to receiving um, what will, I'm sure, be quite a few submissions and and to think that a couple of years ago we were wondering how we'd ever get any i know i i, I feel very grateful that people submit to us so yeah, absolutely absolutely um and and one of the things that you know we want to achieve in the next few months I mean, clearly you know it's been it's been pell-mell over we've been publishing for a year now and in that time we've learned a lot we've learned particularly on the production side how to do that efficiently effectively and and you know, we think well. Um, the marketing side made some progress, still loads to do. And in that time, the marketplace has got a lot tougher. And uh, on that uh, on that message, we're going to the news now. Um, you can talk about 
the uh, a new imprint from Bonnier Books. Yeah, so um, Bonnier Books, um, and they're quite a sort of uh, well, they've been around for contemporary. I know, but they still have a very contemporary outlook, and and you know they're yeah, they're, they're but... not stuck in their their ways. They they are very forward thinking. They evolve. They're very good at evolving, from my um, observations. So they've uh, just launched a digital first imprint called Embla. So digital first obviously means that they will focus on the digital publishing of books, but uh, physical copies is sort of you know secondary to that. So they're not ruling that out because traditional publishers they still want to keep that element of their business i think but you know this is this is quite interesting um so we were reading this article and a lot of the sort of the new the people involved in this new imprint have come from uh well they picked up two people from thomas and mercer aka amazon that's their crime imprint so they've got a couple from there. They've picked up some people from Rat- Penguin Random House, I think, or yeah. one of the other and big Michael markets. Joseph, wasn't it, which is yeah. Penguin Random House. So they've got a, a sort of a marketing expert on the case for really focusing their marketing in a very contemporary way. They, they said they're talking about um, some very uh, uh, creative and original digital marketing campaigns to launch their books in the US and the UK markets. And what we've noticed in the last few weeks, really, mm. is how traditional publishers have moved into the territory on Facebook and Amazon ads and using all the techniques that the indie publishing world and indie authors have been using for, for several years to success. And also, I think this is important to stress, uh, some really big titles, literary titles, from Penwing and Random House and all those sort of uh, publishers, they're dropping down to 99p. Yeah, so I notice this because um, I get served a lot of uh, book adverts on Facebook for obvious reasons. And it was within a few seconds of each other, there were three that came up. One from, um, I think it was HQ. Uh, one was from Penguin Random House, and I can't remember the other one. But And one of them was um, a writer called Mike Gale, which many people may have heard of. He's been writing since, uh, I think, the early 90s. I've got some of his books. His new book, 99p. And he's an established author. He's very well respected. He's got a massive following, you know. So the, the sort of the whole this idea of having a reduced price offer on a new book or or the first book in a series is being taken up by the big publishers as well because it works. It's a strategy that obviously works, and they, you know, that's the nature of business. People copy. They yeah. see something works, and they copy it. Well, then. You can only presume that the, what they're trying to do is drive up sales digitally and then get Amazon to feature it in hot new releases and in the top 100 and to market the books in their emails, much as we always try to do with our launches. And it's getting harder and harder because, you know, if the big boys are doing it with their aggressive budgeting and, and, and you know, uh, also their you, you combine that with their traditional, their grip on traditional, um, you know, publishing media, i.e., you know, it's almost impossible to get an independent book uh, reviewed uh, in one of the national newspapers in the UK because the, 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 the big publishing houses have it and they've also got a grip on bricks and mortar relationships as well with Waterstones and WH Smith. So it's getting harder and harder. And then if you add in something like Richard and Judy Book Club, which you have to pay so much to feature in, uh, it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder. So, you know, we're not waving a white flag, but what we are doing is prioritising um, a review of what we're doing and how we do it better. 
I think that what this is teaching us is that we always have to be one step ahead. We always have to be looking out for something new and different and effective as best we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, we haven't mentioned who our guest is this week. We haven't. So this is a lady who was snapped up by um, Bonnier. So it was Zafri Books, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, it one of their imprints, yeah. So she, um, she fir- her first book was published um, with Bloodhound. It took her seven years to write it, although it took her 40 years to get to the point of having a book uh, ready to publish. And um, then uh, the deal was uh, taken up by Zafri, who offered her a three-book deal. Fantastic. And it is? Leslie McEvoy. Leslie McAvoy. I'm sorry. I, I'm not very good with pronunciations. <laughs> Leslie McAvoy joins us. It's really um, an inspiring interview. She's got a, a great tale. I mean, she's, she is a, uh, a, a profiler for um, the police and for, uh, for, for the prison service. She's, uh, she trains as, uh, as a clinical psychologist and uh, she has a, a, a great deal of insight into, well, she's met and, and, and treated some of uh, Britain's most dangerous prisoners, uh, places like Strangeways in in Manchester. So, uh, she, but her story really is the inspirational part is her determination to become an author, and uh, she just wished she had the courage to do it earlier. But she's always been a writer, and now she's going to be a published author. Oh, well, she is a published author, and she has a big deal with Zaffa. So, I, I think the other thing that I learned from our uh, conversation with Leslie was just how sort of grounded she was. You know, you have this image of a three-book deal with a major publisher. It makes you think of, right, that's it. You're fine. You can put your feet up and relax. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, we'll get into that very shortly. Let's look at some other news then. Um, I've got in front of me uh, a story from the bookseller about Novelry. Now, Novelry is an online uh, tuition uh, portal, I suppose, um, a campaign and course which uh, encourages new authors and teaches them how to write novels. And it's got some fantastic names attached to it. Uh, some big industry figures have, have jumped in, and they've said that their growth has been exponential during the um, during the pandemic. People trying, you know, turning their hands to writing their novel and looking for advice, and they've got hundreds of clients. And they have relationships with agents, and they're aiming, they say, uh, to... Louise Dean, this is who who, who created it. Uh, they're aiming to get to a hundred percent. So when when they recommend a novel, someone an agent will pick it up, for instance, or it'll get a publishing deal. Now we've uh, we've approached Louise, so we'll see if she'll come on the program and talk more about it. But I've um, I've done something similar in the past um, with the Golden Egg Academy, who are a, 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 an outfit um, who concentrate on children's books the different age groups whether it's young adult or middle grade or or younger than that and um you know i learned a lot from it but at the same time uh it is quite it's 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 a long process and in a sense the carrot is you get you'll get introduced to an agent at some point or you might get uh uh, picked up by one of the publishers and they've had great success 57 i think authors now have uh, got book deals but at the same time, there are probably another three, four hundred clients who are still in that process, and it's a long process. So I think, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not being cynical about it. I mean, I, I, I have kind of dropped out of it uh, because we're running Hobeck now, and in a sense, my time is, is spent with that. But it is, uh, it is a lot. You know, you're, you're selling a dream there, and you have a responsibility, I think, to do it well. 
but it's offering an alternative, a sort of correspondence alternative to doing an MA. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, she speaks about that, doesn't she? That, you know, yes, you can do an MA course and they are getting better at focusing on the, the final result and getting a, a publishing deal. However, this course is, is, that is the focus. They want to get people ready for publication. They want to get their writing up to scratch. Well, that's she says here in the, uh, quoted in the bookseller, we're unapologetically interested in getting them published. That's what differentiates us from an MA programme at a university, although they are quite good with that. We will take them all the way to, from, to finished novel manuscripts and we will secure them literary representation. So that's quite a claim. Mm. But is it 75%? So far. So far, which I think is very, very high, isn't it? It is very high. It is very high. Uh, yeah. So good good luck to them. Uh, Novelry is the outfit. And uh, as I say, approach Louise and she'll join us at some point, perhaps in the future, we hope. Yeah. And you have a, a little tale. Now, we've seen a bounce, haven't we? I mean, Mark Whiteman um, still, uh, you know, we're waiting to see whether he gets shortlisted for either of the... Uh, uh, bloody Scotland awards that he's he's in line for for Waking the Tiger, um, but it doesn't half ship books or at least you know raise awareness. It raises awareness and it gets that media interest you were talking about. So um, I think it was the Times who they ran an article about the um, um, the long list for the Bloody Scotland because that's how it got on their radar. Those books got on their radar just through that. Um, so there's a there was a um, the book of long list was announced. Uh, last week um, and I as a reader I'm always interested in the book along list because I'm interested in in the sort of books that get on this long list and sometimes they're books I may have read and sometimes they're books by authors I read so this time um, Kazuo Ishiguro um, you know he's been um, he's won it in the past anyway he's on the long list he's a very readable writer he's literary but he's very readable Rachel Cusk is another one I've read all her books so I immediately went out when I saw she was on the long list. I immediately went out. Actually, I didn't go out at all. I ordered it on Amazon because I can't go anywhere. Um, and so the, this, the, they've had a surge in sales of all the long lists since it was announced. Up to 900% increase in sales. I know. Well, then, you know, some books in the Booker list, uh, their publishers might think, right, well, if we're lucky, we'll sell between two and 5,000 copies of a literary book. You know, um, and... Uh, our book a nomination will probably, you know, I can see how it will increase it by 900%. Absolutely. Yeah, because Waterstones stock, always stock the book along list. You go in and you see it on a plinth or something. So, yes, of course, they are going to increase their sales. And there are people like me who go, ooh, <laughs> that looks interesting. So, yeah, you can see how that would happen. But it's, it is interesting that a prize nomination or a prize long list makes a difference in the eyes of certain readers and, and booksellers. It's, it is a, an important endorsement and, uh, you know, you can be cynical about I mean, there's plenty of cynicism around finalists for the booker about, you know, how it's going to be decided on the night and all that sort of malarkey. Um, you know, the judges disappear off for dinner, don't they? And then they, they come, up, <laughs> come up with the award. It's very much like the bloody Scotland. They have lunch, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, it has cachet still. And, uh, you know, some booker prize winners have... Uh, you know, pass into the mainstream, if you like, and others have just sunk into obscurity for being too difficult. But, you know, there's no doubt uh, Hilary Mantel's won it twice. Mm. Uh, third one didn't get nominated this year, I don't think, which is a surprise, perhaps. But 
you know, I loved those books um, and they're challenging, but it's a subject matter I love. I mean, anything about Tudor England and, and Thomas Cromwell, particularly uh, someone I was interested, interested in beforehand. And I think it's brilliantly done. Um, but, you know, perhaps it was asking too much to get, get the third one across. Mm-hmm. Unlike if you're looking at the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films, the final one gets all the Oscars that while the other two were <laughs> held at arm's length and got a couple of technical car- categories, you know, for costumes or whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, I digress. Let's get into the interview, shall we? I think we should. Yeah. Okay. Leslie McAvoy, uh, as I say, uh, has a, a background in clinical psychology. Before that, she uh, she had many other jobs and she'll tell us all about that sort of long journey to the point where she's a, a published author. And it's like so many of our interviews that we've had this the 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 lifelong passion for writing has always been there Mm. and circumstances timing luck play a part in finally getting you know physical copies of the books out there and uh, she's she's achieved that as she's stepped back from her sort of uh, clinical work if you like and is now focusing on her writing in fact she took a year out to get herself, get that manuscript that had taken seven years <laughs> to polish up, uh, ready for publication. And so, you know, it's it's a great, inspiring story. And she spoke to us. Well, she'll tell you where she uh, spoke to us from. But yes. <laughs> it, it had as echoes of um, our, our, fr- our wonderful A.B. Morgan's uh, writing shack. She has something similar at the bottom of her garden in Cheshire. Well, I'm sitting in my, my little writing retreat, which is... Um a purpose-built log cabin at the bottom of the garden. I call it my she shed. And uh, this is where I come to write every day, religiously. I don't, I'm not always productive every day, but I come here every day. And um, it's getting quite warm because <laughs> the temperature's <laughs> creeping up outside. Because it's made out of wood, it can get quite cosy in here. So. Do you think it's easier to write, though, in your in your she shed than it had been previously when in the house with other people? I can't, I'm one of those writers who can't write when there's a lot going on around me. So I'm very envious of my writing friends who say that they go and write in coffee shops or they can write on a train or they can write in a hotel room. I can't do that. I I have to have peace and quiet and not a lot going on. So if I'm in the kitchen and I start writing at the kitchen table and people start coming and going, I have to stop. So yes, for me, this is perfect because... I just come down here and everybody knows to just leave me alone. And I squirrel myself away in here and pretend to be productive and come out looking exhausted as if I've been very creative <laughs> all day and probably haven't. But, but that's uh, the heat. <laughs> yeah. And I drink tea. I drink a lot of tea in here. I can't function. I'm from Yorkshire, so I can't function without tea. I've actually got some blood in my tea stream. And um, <laughs> and I just drink tea and eat rich tea biscuits and pretend to be working. That's what I do in here. But you're in uh, you're in Cheshire. Yes, yes, I did get dragged across to the wrong side of the Pennines. Uh, so I'm a Yorkshire girl, born and bred, and actually, Sunday was National Yorkshire Day. Oh, I didn't so know that. A, yeah, see, so for the people in the know, that was a big day for Yorkshire folk, and uh, it's mandatory to eat Yorkshire puddings and things like that. So you know, if I'd known, and, you'd um, have some of those in the freezer. See, if they're in the freezer, they're not real Yorkshire puddings. Yeah, I was going to say, you're revealing your... uh, My lack of culinary skills. (laughs) Bessie doesn't count, you know. But uh, 
so yes, so I'm from Yorkshire. I'm very proud of Yorkshire, and Yorkshire features very heavily in my books. And actually, the publishers, God bless them, have christened it the Yorkshire Crime Series, which thrills me no end. And because uh, I'm flying the flag for my for God's own country. And um, in 2015, I came, I was dragged kicking and screaming to the wrong side of the Pennines uh, because of a. a of a man you might know so <laughs> my partner lived in Cheshire I lived in Yorkshire and we were doing the horrible commute across the M62 which for anybody in the know is a nightmare of a, of a motorway and eventually he said look one of us is going to have to move but seeing as you can work from anywhere it's going to be you so oh it's always the one who can work from anywhere isn't it <laughs> I know I know he pulled that one but before I was a writer I was self-employed so and I wasn't a writer. I wasn't earning my living writing when I met him. So but I was self-employed. So I could do that from anywhere. So I, I couldn't win, really. No. So I, I drew the short straw. Absolutely. So let, let's go through that, that career path to your current position as full-time writer in your she shed. <laughs> in my she shed. Yeah, it sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? It, it does rather. I mean, it is very, look, I mean, we're, we, we have the benefit of seeing you on camera and bookshelves we're very jealous of bookshelves that aren't stuffed to the gills that's for a start <laughs> and some some nice I saw a, a very nice leather armchair oh yes I could just round. see it yeah yeah so that's 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 oh yeah look I mean oh that's a nice writing desk isn't it yeah <laughs> I mean it's a bit of an oh, it's oh a sofa, look at that no less, no less. oh that's for thinking got, on presumably coming up with yeah, ideas yeah I've got I've got thinking chairs writing chairs desk yeah I've got yeah I'm kind of so I can eat eat biscuits and drink tea in various locations in here really <laughs> oh, extremely jealous but you don't have a skeleton because uh <laughs> alison morgan ab morgan uh, has a skeleton no. <laughs> in hers being um being a psychologist i have the phrenology bust instead oh yes <laughs> of course well that, that gets us neatly onto that subject of, of psychology and take us through your career because you know when we look at we looked up an article that was in the bookseller to say you'd move to Zafri and uh, sign a deal with them three book deal which is fantastic yeah. um, and there are a number of job titles against your name there you know so <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 sort of delve I, keep dodging and, I keep dodging and weaving so people can't catch me um yeah I've had a bit of a tortuous path really but I think from a writing point of view the rest of my employment life has been just a the background hum to my writing, if I'm honest. Um, for anybody out there who's juggling a day job and trying to write, I'd like to think that I'm kind of the voice of hope because um, I, I said, I've been writing all my life. There's a lot of people, if you're at Harrogate and you sit down with anyone, including the bar staff, and you say, you know, what do you do? It doesn't matter what they do. They always end the sentence with, but I'm writing a book or I've written a book or I want to be a writer. Yeah. So in Harrogate, you know, you, you tend to meet a stranger and say, are you a writer, a publisher or another? And they'll usually say, I'm a wannabe writer or I've got a book or I'm pitching a book. And whatever else they're doing, architect, chemist, whatever, is almost secondary. And for the, for the whole of my life, it felt like that to me, too. And my message to them is never give up. You know, as Winston Churchill famously said in a seven word speech, that he gave to a boys school and they asked him to talk about the secret of life and he simply said never give up never ever give up and that is the advice 
that I would give because I think every professional writer is just an amateur who didn't quit. Mm. And, mm. you know, I, I was writing all my life. I started writing when I was a kid at school. And I remember when I was five years old and I was at primary school and they went around and asked everybody what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I was just at that age where I'd realized that books were written, that somebody actually sat down and did them, wrote them. And I was just becoming aware of that. And I was a big Enid Blyton fan. And I said, I want to write books like Enid Blyton. And I remember the teacher laughing and saying, people like us read books, we don't write them. Mm. And, um, and, and I've never forgotten that. And, and if I thought, the old dear was still alive. I'd send her a copy, but she was ancient when I was five, so no doubt she's gone now. <laughs> so I can't read my my revenge. But um, so I've always done it, and then obviously real life gets in the way. So I had a variety of jobs when I left school. Um, I went to work for British Telecom, and I was in marketing there, and. <clears throat> And I had a career there and then I had children and I, I was married and I had a couple of kids. You know, I've got my sons and you get busy earning a living and doing what you have to do to, you know, survive. And um, but I always wrote and actually my first serious query manuscript was sent just before my my children were born. I was 20 years old. And I submitted my first serious manuscript in 1980. And it got quite a bit of attention. In those days, you had to have an agent. In those days, it was the trad publishing world. There wasn't anything else. I mean, my son's glory in telling me that I was 30 before the internet was invented. So, you know, there was no e-publishing. There was no Amazon. There was no, I mean, crikey, when I worked at BT, I remember the first mobile phones coming into existence so you know technology wasn't there then so you had to have publishing was very different you had to have an agent and if you sent an unsolicited manuscript to a publisher you'd never get you'd never get past the door so they wouldn't look at you without an agent and actually getting an agent was more difficult I think and probably still is than getting a publisher um, and I sent my first manuscript off in 1980 and and I, I had two agents that said they were interested and so on. And, and I got an agent and then I carried on hammering away at it. Um, and then the children were born about six years later and six and, and, and nine years later, respectively. And, and so I shelved it because I just got too busy. I always had a manuscript on the go. That first manuscript was written on an old imperial typewriter, you know, the kind. Yeah. And it was a great big metal thing that weighed an absolute ton that you could hardly lift. And it was like Arkwright's till, you know, the keys on it were like <laughs> Arkwright's till. And the, and the carriage return was probably as vicious as Arkwright's till, you know, take your fingers off. Yeah. And, and, and I had to have a carbon copy, you know, carbon paper to make a copy. And I always had it in the back bedroom and, and I'd go back to it whenever I could but time got tighter and tighter and so it took more and more of a back seat and then life progressed and I, I gave up work to look after my kids and I was very lucky I was a stop-at-home mum for seven or eight years and I, I'd write on and off and I won a few little local competitions in book clubs and stuff but 
I was dabbling in it. I couldn't, I couldn't dedicate myself to it, but it was always in the back of my mind. And then fast forward, when I was th in my thirties, I qualified as a psychotherapist and an NLP practitioner and a hypnotherapist. And when I was 35, 36, I became self-employed and I had a therapy practice, but I became a behavioral analyst in and among all of that, that's what interested me. And I became a behavioral analyst and a profiler. And most of my work was in the corporate world. Everybody thinks profilers all work for the police, but there's actually very little work uh, or very few profilers who actually work for the police. And those who do, I don't think there are many that are actually on the payroll, if, if any. I think they're all freelance consultants. I could be wrong and somebody will probably tell me I am, but all the ones I've met are freelancers and they are called upon by the police as and when they need them, which contrary to the TV shows is not every day. So you, you earn a living doing other things. So as a profiler, all of my work was in the corporate world, more, more or less. And um, it was a bit of an eye opener because there were more psychopaths striding the corridors of business than there were in prison. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, you really don't surprise me. I work for the BBC, you know, I know these things. Exactly, exactly. So, and the BBC, funnily enough, were one of my biggest clients. I'm and I worked, I worked a lot down in Cardiff at Clandaff and, you know, where, where they have the, where they filmed Doctor Who and all of that. Yes. And, uh, and they had the TARDIS sitting in the um, reception area. Oh, yeah, they do, don't they? I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so yeah, uh, and and I was employed to either do, you know, teams would have communication issues or behavioural issues, anything that was behavioural or psychological that was derailing a team or a department or a. So you were called in to kind of observe, work out where the pinch points were behaviourally, and then come up with a strategy for solving the problem, and um, so. I, um, hang on, just getting rid of email. I um, started doing a lot of training. So I was training companies on how to identify various behaviors and what to do about it. I also did a lot of work with things like the, the rail industry, especially down on the South Coast, Brighton. I lived for a couple of years down there. Mm -hmm. I love Brighton. And I worked with the Gatwick Express and I worked with the Southern Railway companies teaching staff how to deal with difficult behavior because obviously their frontline staff yeah. get, get an awful lot of stick oh, yeah. uh, and they have to learn how to handle that. And then of course the terrorist threat became an issue and uh, we were dealing with the possibility of marauding active terrorists in open spaces like shopping centers or airports or railway stations, you know, this, this phenomena of domestic terrorism uh, and so I was working closely with companies teaching staff how to um, observe odd behaviour and what to do about it and who to tell. Um, we've had that recently here in my neck of the woods at Manchester, obviously with terrible, terrible events. And so behavioural psychology was becoming a hot thing in, in the corporate world. So. I did a lot of that. And then one of the companies I worked with was a charity. It wasn't a company, it was a charity. And they dealt a lot with drug addiction and 
so I ended up doing quite a lot of work in prison. And obviously the behavioral profiling and, um, and the psychotherapy came in very useful there. And I was training prison staff then in um, the same sort of things and working with prisoners who had found themselves through drug addiction or whatever um, in prison. And so trying to work with them on behavioral issues and that gave me an insight into the kind of people that I write about, um, you know, your, your average serial killer and, uh, and so on. There's such so, a thing as an average serial killer. Yeah, you know, you come in a garden serial killer. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, the, the interesting juxtaposition between the corporate world and the kind of behavioural aberrations that you encounter there and the prison are not that dissimilar and people would be quite shocked to learn that but actually in certain corporate settings these behaviors are very highly rewarded yeah. and i've even been i've even been recruited by some corporations to find people with certain of these traits to employ for certain roles yes and so you know not killing people obviously there are laws against that but traits of ruthlessness and lack of empathy and um single-mindedness and almost narcissistic traits are actually highly rewarded in certain professions and and needed in certain roles or so they believe, so they believe um, yeah. yeah because empathy, they yeah. think empathy gets in the way of them doing their job properly exactly and and some people are recruited to be headhunters or axemen and they can't shy away from having difficult conversations with people or laying people off or you know culling jobs and they have to be able to sleep nights and so they want these kind of ruthless characters who who can do that and who have no qualms about doing that and can have quite you know difficult conversations with people about laying them off or axing jobs and that kind of thing acquisitions you know it can be quite cutthroat so yeah uh, but in a clean way not in an illegal way and so it was very interesting seeing that and then it was 20 uh it was 2017 I went to Harrogate I've been to Harrogate often but I went in 2017 and I'd moved over here I was living in Cheshire I'd moved over here in 2015 and I went to Harrogate and I, and I kind of thought I was coming up to a big birthday. Um, for those of you who could do the mental arithmetic, I've kind of already given away that statistic, but I was coming <laughs> up for a big birthday. And I thought if I don't give it one big push and just dedicate myself to trying to get into print, I'm probably never going to do it now. And it had been 40 odd years since I'd, 40 years since I'd sent my very first serious query to an agent. And I thought 40 years is long enough, you know, to be an overnight success. I ought to give it a, a bit of a good, good try. And I, I watched pitch, I watched them pitch in Dragon's Pen at, at Harrogate. And I thought, right, I'll do it next year. So I, I came back and I said to my partner, oh, look, I'm going to put the business in on hold for a year. I'm going to take a year out and I'm going to really give it a serious shot. And I thought the only way I can do this is to treat writing like a day job, like a serious profession and just yeah. give it a go and really dedicate eight hours a day, five days a week 
to the to the business. And I'd had a manuscript on the go for about seven years that I'd picked up and put down, picked up and put down. And it and it was the the murder mile, which was my debut novel. And it had come about when I not long after I qualified, I encountered a bizarre situation which gave me the idea for the murder mile. And I carried that idea around for a long time. But in the early days of my uh, qualifying as a, as a psychotherapist, I didn't know enough to pull it off. I had a great idea, but I didn't know how, to, I knew who'd done it, but I didn't know how to do it. And so I carried that around and I thought, right, I'm gonna dust it off and give it a go. So in 2017, I, I took a year out. In 2018, I went to Harrogate with it and I pitched and, and, it, and it was well received. And then um, in November of that year, somebody who'd been in, in the audience in Harrogate had heard me pitch, spoke to a Bloodhound Books about me and they contacted me in November and said, send us your manuscript, which I did. And they published The Murder Mile in May of 2019. And that's how it all began. Mm. Wow. So, so yeah, it only took it only took me forty years to crack it. I was going to say, on <laughs> that big birthday. So, that, hang on, that's what you would have been. I was zero when you year. wrote your first manuscript. So. <laughs> I, was 20, I was I was twenty when I sent off my oh, first okay. series. I mean, I've been writing a long time, but it took me till I was twenty to kind of know enough to polish it enough to send it off to get through the door. Yeah, and so I sat on Arkwright's till, you know, yeah. and I sent it. <laughs> And I was 20 and I was 60 the year that my debut novel sure. came out. So all I can say to anybody out there who thinks if you haven't cracked it by 30 or 40, you're not going to, you know, just keep going. Because Absolutely. It, there isn't an age limit on this job. You know, you don't have to retire at 60 or 65. And, you know, you can as long as you've still got your brain, you can keep going and a, and a hunt and peck finger, you know, to type. You can keep going. There's something about having that life experience and clearly in the field that you've been in experiencing the extremes of human behavior and being able to recognize it, analyze it, explain it to some extent, um, which will, will obviously have strengthened your writing at this stage. But had you been successful back in 1980, do you think you'd have been ready? I like to tell myself I would, but if I'm honest, no, I wouldn't. I mean, the books I was writing back then were very different. I wasn't a therapist then. I hadn't had that life journey. That wasn't my career path. I was working in the corporate world. I was in marketing at the time. Uh, and my first book was a thriller because I used to read political thrillers. I used yeah. to read Frederick Forsyth and, and, and that kind of book. So that's what I wrote. I think you, you tend to write what you read. That's very true. A lot uh, of people say that, don't they? Yeah, and that that they say write the kind of books that you'd want to read, and that's what I used to read. And and I dabbled in romantic historical romances because in my teens that's what I read. And I dabbled in manuscripts with that, but I felt I got into my stride with a political thriller. But I never I never it never made it. I've still got the manuscript now. It's you know <laughs> size, the size of a doorstep. It's huge. And um I think when I when I got my first book published in 2019 one of the things that I said I regretted was not cracking it sooner if you know if people say to me 
do you wish you'd done anything different? I think I wish I'd have made it sooner, but that's a very good question. Had I made it at 20, no, I wouldn't have been ready. I think my writing was okay, but it wasn't polished enough. I don't think I'd had enough experience of both reading and writing. I don't think I'd found my voice. And mm. I, still, I don't think I'd found it even when I was in my 30s. When I look at manuscripts and things I was writing then, my voice wasn't there. I think it takes you a while to get into that rhythm and to find your voice. Um, and I think the only reason I found it with my first novel was because it took me seven years of picking it up and putting it down. And the incarnations it went through in that seven years, I can see my voice developing. I can see my getting into my stride. Took me a long time. Obviously, I'm a very slow learner, but I think, yeah, I wish I'd have I, I had more years in front of me with it because I feel like I've cracked it when I'm looking down the hill instead of up the hill. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, maybe five or ten years ago would have been good. Any sooner than that, probably not. And I don't think I would have had a thick. Well, I still haven't got a thick enough skin, but I certainly wouldn't have had in my twenties. I think you know bad reviews would have just I would have stopped and and the rejections you know I did get a lot of rejections in my 20s obviously but if I'd have been trying to earn a living at it I think I would have stopped because I just felt it was too precarious I'm at that time of life now where I've got the luxury of not having to pay the mortgage with it I mean in the early day even with the first book I couldn't have made a living at it. It's only now, you know, three book deal with Zaffa that it, it's getting a bit grown up. You know, I'm getting a grown up job again. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> it's, it's like that feeling that, you know, however old you are, you don't quite feel a grown up. My 82 year old mother says this to me. She says, I still feel 16, you know. <laughs> well, she still looks I, it. <laughs> I think there's a bit of imposter. I think there's a bit of imposter syndrome as well, because. I keep expecting somebody's going to come on and go, you're not a proper writer. You know, you should go back to working in, in the corporate world. And I, but I think everybody feels like that. They I mean, do, I think so. I mean, I, I felt that like Harrogate talking to people that most people, exactly. whatever stage they are, however many books they got published, they still feel well, that. There was an element when Richard Osman was the key speaker at the end. He came on stage feeling he had to justify his position. I mean, he is the best-selling author the last 18 months probably of all time in terms of debut book it's just gone crazy hasn't it you know yeah. the number of millions he sold and yet he's you know just and of course he's moving from a different sphere in, in in television but he's still there was still an element of i can't quite believe that i've achieved this and i'm not you know he yeah. was trying to justify himself i i pinch myself every single day because this has been the lifelong dream and and literally a lifelong dream and working. I mean, it, at any point in my life, no matter what I was doing, if somebody had said to me, what's your dream job? I would have said to be an author and to just write full time. But it felt so far away. It felt so unrealistic because I had what everybody else has got. You know, I had to pay the bills. I had to, you know, look after the kids. I had to, and to the thought of doing that and sitting in some ivory tower or some wooden she shed, and actually yeah. doing it every day was so far removed from my reality that it well, was a dream. I think it's partly also, like you said, your primary school teacher saying, you know, people like us read, they don't write. I think, that, you know, yeah. that is actually quite a common 
uh, opinion, isn't it? That and the, and the other thing is when you you know you go to Harrogate and I I was there like everybody else. I had my nose pressed up against the glass, and I was talking to people like Ian Rankin and Mark Billingham and at the bar and saying how do you do, how how do you do this? How do you get to this? And I, I wanted it so badly, and um, I used to believe that everybody had an MA in creative writing or they were an English teacher or they had a background in journalism or you know something that would prevent me from getting there and again what I'd like to say to anybody out there who dreams about it is you don't need any of that I didn't have any of that I haven't got a degree in creative I've never done a creative writing course I, I, I left school with English language and English literature A level that was it you know I my background was very different but I think if you want it enough, you know, my dad, bless him, he's gone now, but he used to say to me, if you, you can be, do or have anything you want in life, if you're willing to put in the work and you want it enough to pay the price, there's the caveat, there is a price, there's a price tag on everything. Mm. And I think if you weigh up what that price is and you determine you're going to pay it, you can be, do or have anything you want. And I think writing is no different, but I came to it a different route. And as I've heard a lot of the people that you've interviewed say the same, read. Your ticket into writing isn't an MA in creative writing or a, a writing. I mean, there's a lot of people who've got that who don't get published, you know, equally. But I think the ticket is accessible to everybody because it's books. It's just books. Yeah. Just read and read and read. And read the kind of thing you want to write. You know, it's no good thinking, well, I want to be a Booker Prize winner, so I'm going to read the high-level highbrow literature that actually I hate but that's the ticket in you know it's not find your genre find your voice and just keep doing it and learn the craft just learn it the hard way by doing it and doing it and doing it and don't give up I'm, I'm intrigued you mentioned that obviously the murder mile was a seven-year process yeah um so and you're looking at the different iterations you could see your voice emerging but yeah. if, I, I you know I get the impression that you're someone who is uh, desires to improve it every time you oh. get to the keyboard you get you want to get better so what oh. what areas do you think improved over those seven years from from the first drafts to the one that was published I think I grew in into my writing I think I started out quite pretentious so I think I'd always written but yeah. I, I'd, I'd learned by then once you know when I started The Murder Mile as a raw manuscript, I'd learned what my genre was. So I knew it was going to be in crime fiction. And people can be a bit snobby about genres. You know, the crime fiction, and they talked about it at Harrogate on, the, on the, uh, some of the platform events. They were saying that, you know, it used to be pe people in the literature were quite snobby about crime fiction. It was kind of not taken that seriously. Um, and, and it was all about highbrow literature and the, you know, the sort of thing that, that wins the Booker Prize. But actually, crime fiction, and, and it's a bit the same with romantic fiction. People can be a bit snobby about it, but actually crime fiction probably sells more and earns more in, in writing terms than any, any other genre, you know, put together. Um, so find you, I found my genre. I knew it was going to be crime fiction. I'd found my character and that was the thing. And I'd, and I'd, I'd messed around with 
in early iterations writing it in third person because the books I read were all, majority were, the, were written in third person. But I found that it was clumsy for me and I couldn't quite work out why it wasn't working for me. And then I, one day I just thought I'm going to, well, it was the incident that gave me the idea for the murder mile that I wrote it down. When it happened, I couldn't quite believe what I'd witnessed. So I wrote it down like a, a witness statement. It was almost like my observation. And I did it for my clinical notes. Mm. And I realized that first person flowed better for me to see it through my eyes, to experience it with my senses. So I changed. So it, 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 it switched from third person to first. And then, then I got into my stride. Then I found it. And it had taken me 40 years. All the other books I'd ever tried, all the other manuscripts I'd ever written were in third person. That, that, that was what did it. Oh, Writing down clinical notes and then, and then thinking, actually, if I create my character and I write from her viewpoint, and it's through her eyes, and it's her experience, that works for me. doesn't work for everybody. And it does have its problems. First person is problematic. Uh, as a Plotting, it's very difficult, yeah. Very, very difficult. So actually, you make, I made life a bit hard for myself, but here, that's the story of my life. So, it's a challenge, isn't it? So. <laughs> well, you can't kind of go, meanwhile, over here, this happens, or meanwhile, back at the ranch. You know, the only way that your main character learns anything is like the rest of us. It opens up in front of her. So she sees it through her eyes or she's told it or she experiences it. It's just like it is for everybody. But I think that makes it real mm. for my character. Um, so that, that, that was how I saw that iteration changing. And, and the other thing is I learned more about from, from a psychotherapy point of view that enabled me to finish the book. I carried it for a long time because I couldn't work out the how done it. And then I learned enough that I could pull that off. So so those are the, the, the two key developments. Now, with the endorsement of a three-book deal with Zaffer, what does that mean to you in terms of self-confidence and that imposter syndrome that you, you perhaps have had in the past? I can't tell you. I mean, I mean getting the book published, 2019 was brilliant and I held it in my hand and it was a dream come true and unfortunately my parents were no longer around to see it. that's another reason why doing it at a later age yeah. an older age has a downside in that my parents are not here to see it um my boys are you know my children suddenly their mother's got a little bit more street cred but um <laughs> <laughs> which is good um but um the, the, I, I, I cracked it with a, a digital publisher, an e-book e publisher. And what they said to me was, you know, we'll publish your book, but if you want to ever see your book on a bookshelf, in a bookshop, that's not going to happen with us. And I said, no, that's fine. But, you know, after all those years, I just wanted to see that book in my hand. But it's like anything else, you know, the human condition being what it is, the minute you've achieved that, you're looking for the next thing. Yeah. Mm. And so for me, I think as well and this is an age thing probably as well is that my boys they don't read book books they don't read paper paper books that you hold in your hand it's all kindle it's all digital for them they read on their phone they read on their ipad they read on their kindles for me that five-year-old that said i want to be enid blyton 
I want to see it on a bookshelf. I want to hold a paperback in my hand. I want to, that's real, real success for me. So when Zaffa offered me the three book deal, and I have to say that in large part was down to a guy you might have heard of called Ian Rankin. Rankin. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, the name <laughs> rings a bell, doesn't it? Somewhere. We may have spoken but to him. <laughs> if it hadn't been for him, you know, I I owe him a lot because the Zaffa deal came around through him. But um, what that did for me in terms of confidence, which was the question, is I can't even, I couldn't even verbalise what that did because on lots of levels it meant a I was going to have a retail presence. Suddenly I was going to see my book in bookshops, which hasn't happened yet, but it, it's about to on the, um, in, in December this year. The Murder Mile is, is, they've taken the Murder Mile, they bought the rights to it, they've repackaged it, given it a new cover, re-edited it, and they're launching that. It's, it's available on Kindle now, but they're launching it, relaunching it as a paperback original um, into the shops in December this year. Um, so I will, you know, and coming to an ASDA near you, get me I mean, we're gonna look out for you <laughs> my mother would have been so proud i mean if i'd have said to my mum waterstones or smith she'd have gone nah asda wow <laughs> you know, that that would have been it she'd have had all her mates around there with getting trumpets that's champagne so, at the book aisle in asda oh, i'm sorry i i i won't be singing in asda I, I, well, we booths or waitrose oh yes. come on yes um, <laughs> Tesco, I, I buy books in tesco all the time because they're so cheap <laughs> see I'm, I'm a yorkshire girl asda does it for me i'm fine with that <laughs> they used to be one of my clients i used to work with them in the head office their head office is in leeds and I used to go into Leeds and work with that. And now I'm thinking, coming to a bookshop near you, you know, coming to an Asda aisle near you. <laughs> so, um, so on that level, you know, I'm going to see it on the shelves. The fact that a big publisher like that has, has got faith in me is, is just amazing. Does it get rid of the imposter syndrome? No, in some days it makes it worse. Because <laughs> some days I think, God, they're going to realise I'm not a grown-up. What, what happens when they suddenly realise that I'm blagging it, you know? Um, and I think as well, some days there's a case to be careful what you wish for because the full-time job of writing now is more full-time than the full-time job used to be. I mean, I work harder now than I did when I had my own business, when I was running the consultancy. Um I think that's quite um, interesting because people probably imagine a lot of it, like you say, is spent in coffee shops dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't write in coffee shops anywhere. Um, but um, the, the pressure of a deadline. I mean, when I was working in the consultancy, I did have deadlines sort of, but, but I kind of could set my own. Uh, you know, a client would come to me and say, this is the piece of work. What, you know, what do you think? And I could kind of set my own pace. Um, to a degree but now you know it's like book two um, I can say this because this podcast is going out on the ninth uh, but book two the killing song is released on kindle on the 25th of November and it's being released on paperback on the 12th of May next year they're splitting the kindle and the paperback treat mm. differently um, and suddenly, 
I have this deadline because we're in the middle of editing it, but it's already up on Amazon. It's and it says, you know, 25th yeah, November. Change I'm, thinking, that. <laughs> I'm thinking, right, okay, if I don't eat, don't sleep, <laughs> and, and spend every waking minute in the shoot, you know, I've now got deadlines set by other people. So there's a pressure there that I didn't have before. Um so yeah, it's um I do I do panic. And I I'm on a huge learning curve. I mean, I'm learning on the job. But, and being with somebody like Bonnie Azafa is a whole different world. You know, the, the, the big trad publishers is a very different world. And I'm learning that really quick. Um, so I, I just feel like the new kid on the block who's peddling really fast to learn everything and keep up with everything. So in, in, in yeah. what terms? I mean, obviously, if you're dealing with Bloodhound, you know, you're dealing with Betsy and with Fred who are running it. And of course, they've just been... Uh, merged and bought out by a much bigger outfit this week um yeah. and indeed you know in in, in a way hobeck yeah if you get an email from me it's a, it's a rarity um i am <laughs> or, or it's about audio <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm across everything obviously uh but the fact is that you you must now have a bewildering number of people that you that are in contact with you yeah, I mean, they have been very good and, they, and they, it does feel, it does have a family feel, even though it's much bigger, in that, you know, Ben Willis is my editor um, and he's the guy that is my main point of contact. Uh, so I do tend to deal with the same kind of people, but, you know, he'll say things to me like, well, I'm sending the graphics off, you know, the media department are working on the graphics and... Um, and then the techie people are going to upload it onto Amazon, and then and I'll get emails from people that I I'm not I don't know who'll say you know that they're from publishing or media or IT or so yes you suddenly realise although you you do still deal with your main point of contact that it is much bigger but it's things like um, the the number of editors edits that a book goes through is a lot more than it was uh, with Bloodhound. Um, and, I mean, the Murder Mile, they, they, they bought that from Bloodhound and, they, and thankfully, so that I could keep the series because I created a character for the first one, Joe McCready, who's a forensic psychologist, because they say, write what you know, and that's what I know. So I created her as my character. I can't write about a cop because I'm not a cop. I can't write about a pathologist because I'm not medical. So I created this character and um, and that was Blood and Bloodhound published that. If, and Zaffa, bless them, said, you know, we love the idea of this as a series. So they bought the Murder Mile and that now forms their book one of the Yorkshire Crime series. And I'm on with book three at the minute. Um, but even that it had already been published it had already been out there but it went through their machine and their machine of repackaging it redesigning the cover and the edits it must have gone through several passes at re-edit which surprised me because you know it was already out there I didn't think it would need but it's a different animal it's a different machinery and you suddenly realize you're bigger part of a much bigger um process and the, and the biggest learning curve for me is the speed i think yes. what ebooks do and what the small digital publishers have as an advantage is speed they're very fleet of foot 
you know, they can turn it around from submission to publication, maybe six months. Yeah, that's yes. what we do, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So from the minute that, I mean, Bloodhound offered me a contract in November of 2018, and by May of 2019, the book was out. Um, with the big houses, it's a year, 18 months, two years. Everything's slower because it's bigger and it's there's more steps to go through. It's a bigger process. It's a longer process. It's more tortuous. And I have to manage my own expectations because, you know, I'm impatient. It's taken me 40 years to get here. I haven't got another, you know, 20 years to wait. So I'm sort of saying, can we not do it quicker? Why is it taking so long? And they're going, well, that's because that's how it is. Mm. It's like when they get a book in Asda, for example, um, they have to book a slot. You know, the supermarkets and the bookshops, they have their, they're probably planning, planning Christmas 2022 already. Yes. So, you know, their leading time for things is, is, is a lot further down the line. So the big publishers have to arrange all of that so far ahead of time. So things are a lot slower. And um, yeah, so that's a learning curve. That it, you know, you're not as quick off the mark as the digital houses and it's not as fast it's not as instantaneous it's not as real time and and you have to be mindful of that when you're writing because I in the back of my mind I'm thinking I'm writing about things now yes but the book might not come out until the end of 2022 and and have I suddenly dated it then have I shot myself in the foot you know I don't talk about current affairs because in two years' time, that whole landscape is going to be very different. Mm. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, I mean, I don't talk about the pandemic, you know, because I think people have had enough of it. Uh, so my characters live in a bubble where the pandemic didn't happen. Because if you write about that now, what's going to happen at the end of 2022 when that book comes out? Or So, you know, you, it creates different challenges, I think. Absolutely. And in terms of specking out and scoping a, a, the series um now uh, joe mccready you say your main character um how difficult is that to to sort of envisage to have you know obviously you've got three books to uh you know that you're you're expected to deliver on top of the one you've already got um that's that's already a challenge uh but do you see uh the potential to get to double figures Oh, gosh. Well, when I started writing Joe McCready, and as I'm sure you've heard this a million times from authors who write series, you don't expect it to be a series. So I'd carried the murder mile around for seven years, finally got it published and thought, we're here, that's it. And then it was actually Betsy and Bloodhound who said, could there be a series in this? So I was already thinking about that. And I said, well, yeah, you know, you, I've got the character. I've created a, a world for her and a backstory and a location. So, yeah, let's put different, you know, all I've got to come up with, she says blithely. And, but this, this is the hardest bit, is the, is the spot. Um, so I thought, yeah, she can run and run. And unlike a cop, she's freelance. She doesn't retire, you know. So I know that when I spoke to Ian Rankin and said, what would you do differently? He said I would have made Rebus younger when I created him. Yes. Yeah, he said that to us as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So obviously they get to a point where if they're a cop, you know, they can't really be working when they're 70. So you have to retire them and then and then you have to come up with some ingenious way to get them involved in crime because yeah. they wouldn't be come back from retirement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
with Joe McCready being a freelancer and self-employed, she's got no retirement age, so that's all right. Yeah, so I thought that good. was okay. <laughs> um, but I, uh, maybe I shouldn't admit this. Maybe I, I shouldn't admit this, but um, seeing as it's only you and I and nobody else is listening, I can probably tell Not you. Not from this, Rebecca's but... mother, that's right. I'd yeah, love to think my yeah, mother's but, listening anyway. Yeah. Nobody, else, nobody else is going to hear this. But I talk to authors who say to me, I've got so many ideas. And particularly people who want to be authors who say, oh, I'm writing a book or I've written a book. I've got so many ideas for plots and I'm brimming with them. And, and I'm not. And I really, that's the bit I really find difficult because I've got the character and I can create her and her world and her, you know, I have no problem with that. It's getting a decent plot that hasn't been done. Well, they've all been done, but do you know what I mean? That mm, you can put your spin twist on, on it. <laughs> yeah, and also, from my point of view, my USP is the psychology of it because she's a forensic psychologist, and I think what makes it different, she's not a cop, she's not a private detective, which we don't really have those in England anyway. She's, you know, so so... When she gets involved with something, there has to be a psychology element to it. So, and to be honest with you, in psychology, there's not that many. You know, you haven't got endless psychological tricks that you can use. But I try and get a different element of psychology or a condition or a, a psychological phenomena in there so that the reader's learning about something that most people find quite fascinating. I know when I talk to people about what I do they're very fascinated in what makes people tick and psychopathy and you know the aberrations of behavior and is there such a thing as evil and so I like to take a psychological phenomena or twist or condition like multiple personality disorder or uh, false memory or whatever amnesia or PTSD or something and sort of not educate in a preachy way but let the reader have an insight into a condition like that which gives makes it a bit different a bit more interesting so and and then create a plot around that as well so i i you know could i see it going into double figures that probably keeps me awake nights thinking about <laughs> that i have to think of the next one i mean my publisher's already saying to me have you got an idea bubbling away for book four and i go um to say yeah. yes <laughs> yeah and then I'm thinking book four oh my god you know get thinking so could well, I see I don't know we'll see how it goes hopefully well, as I, you say there's a price to pay for what you you know to achieve what to you pay. want to achieve the and creativity doesn't come on tap either does it it's it's ebbs and flows so <laughs> I mean I I have to have the discipline of coming into the she shed every day like I did when I was running the business and I and I I have a later start in the morning because I, I, my brain doesn't really work, wake up and get into gear till about 10-ish. So I have to have plenty of cups of tea and, and, you know, get going. And then I try and work till about five, six. If I'm on a roll, I'll stay out here. I mean, it has been known that I've locked this up and gone down the garden at midnight, you know. But I have to come in here Monday to Friday, treat it like the day job and sit. And sometimes it's you hit the sweet spot. You're in the zone. And you work and it's brilliant. You come out thinking I've had a really good day. And other times it's like wading through treacle. And I come out and think I've written 200 words. And I'm not even sure that they're any good. You know, and tomorrow I'll probably read them and go, what were you thinking? You know, and just delete <laughs> and start again. So 
creativity doesn't come on tap. I don't no, think. it doesn't. It's what Johnny Marr and says. I, Inspiration has to find you working. Good. See, so I'm not on my own with that. Although I did read somewhere that um, I think it might have been Mickey Spillane or somebody like that back in the mist of time, who was on a high and he was and he was making a lot of money and he went away on holiday and he was on a beach somewhere and he decided, you know, this is all right. And he actually missed a deadline and he was digging his toes in the sand and having quite a nice time. And he couldn't think of anything, couldn't think of anything. Inspiration wouldn't come, creativity wouldn't come. And then his bank manager rang him and said he was running out of money. And he said, it's amazing how that sharpened the creativity. So whether not having that pressure is a bad thing, I'm not sure, but there are days when it, you do struggle with it and, and there are some days where I give up and I just think especially a couple of weeks ago when it was so hot I've come to the conclusion that my, my brain doesn't work in extreme heat <laughs> yeah I, I pull that down to the fact that I'm of Irish origin and the Celts are not built for the heat no, no they're we, not no <laughs> we thrive when it's wet I'm sat next to someone who's not built for the heat <laughs> No. So my brain starts to bubble in my skull when it gets above about 25 degrees. And so there were days when I just had to knock off and thought it's just not going to happen. It's just not. So stop beating yourself up about it. Just go and do something else. Sit in the garden, read a book, you know, and call it research, you know, um, or sit and stare into space. I keep telling people if, if they see me sitting in a chair in the garden, just staring into space, I'm working. Yes. That's that, what that is says, working. <laughs> so. That's yeah. your excuse too. <laughs> well, if you if you see me watching Bergerac on Britbox, that's me. Oh working. no, there is no way you can tell me watching Bergerac. The first series of Bergerac is research. Search, <laughs> yeah. It's like I watch serial killer documentaries all the time. My partner gets a bit of a nervous tick. You know, he thinks it's not wholesome, but I just tell him it's research. Everyone has a dark side, <laughs> as one of our authors said. <laughs> well, one of the questions that I'm often asked as a psychologist and a profiler is. Can anybody kill? And the answer to that is yes. And people find that quite fun. And then I'll meet somebody who oh, I could never kill. I could never kill. But the question is, can anybody kill, not can anybody commit a murder? Yes. And, and the answer is yes, they can. But the caveat is, given the right triggers, given the right circumstances. So you look at what happens in a war when people, ordinary people who never would have thought they could be in those situations, ascent to war when we had conscription during the Second World War, for example. And the most, you know, the butcher baker, the candlestick maker could kill in certain circumstances. Now committing a murder is a different thing. Mm. Is everybody capable of it? Yes, given the right triggers. Now, some people's trigger is a lot higher. The bar is a lot higher than for others. You know, some people are on a hair trigger, doesn't take much. Um, and they're the ones that you end up visiting in strange ways, you know, but... Um, so yeah, that kind of uh, that kind of theory is interesting to people. Yeah, it, it is because they, they they look into to themselves, don't they? And they think, well, that means I'm capable of killing all. I'm capable of murdering. I know the right I trigger. am. Ca- I, I know I'm capable. Yeah, I know you're capable. Well, I know. I'm- <laughs> yeah, I'm capable <laughs> and as well. Some people I'm think it was on a hair trigger. <laughs> if I have the last wine gun, I hide. <laughs> <laughs> you see, when you when people go, no, I could never do it. A lot of people couldn't do it for the, for themselves. But a lot of people could do it on behalf of somebody they care about. So, and, and for most people, that is their children. So if you, if you put, if you paint a scenario where somebody you love is in danger or is being threatened or has been hurt, could you then, to protect your kids, to protect your partner, to protect, you know, 
and for a lot of people the bar starts to come down a bit yeah. then it's, you know that's because psychologically we're wired to do that you know that's primeval survival yeah, it's, that's Dar- of your... it's darwinian and and so you know we're pack animals and so we we have that pack mentality of protecting the young uh especially women you know the female of the species is Ooh, yeah we're the most dangerous yeah. <laughs> don't i know it <laughs> the last wine gum <laughs> <laughs> leslie it's been an absolute pleasure we, we're very conscious of the fact that you've got uh, we've eaten an hour of your your uh you know 10 to 5 schedule so <laughs> and that, yes but you see you're my excuse today ah, so ah, my okay excuse. you're happy to be an excuse <laughs> today because i had to do this podcast you see absolutely absolutely look we wish you every success with the new deal uh just remind us again when the next in the series comes out and and what it's called so the killing song uh is due out uh on the 25th of november on kindle and then it's coming out on the 12th of may in paperback but it's gone up onto amazon today with the new cover so if you go onto amazon you can pre-order kindle or paperback today fantastic and uh your story as many of our guests has have been in, in the last few weeks, hugely inspiring. I know a lot of people will take a lot of uh, energy and inspiration from your story of, you know, never giving up. Just do it. Yeah. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Uh, well, we wish you every success with it. And, uh, you know, in, and I look forward to the double figure book. <laughs> number 10. We'll interview you again when you publish number 10. When I get into double figures. Yeah. If I'm not, if I'm not totally decrepit and, and in my dotage by then you can... or if it, you may indeed be visiting me in strange ways by then you never know that's <laughs> how hair trigger your hair trigger is doesn't it yeah yeah I think, oh, I think I, you know it's a shame Thank we didn't you. meet when i was in uh, in the corporate world i think i needed your help <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me it's a great pleasure thank you so much thank you i just love speaking to people with so much passion and energy we always seem to get that with, I love with it our too. interviews. And it, it's like a pick-me-up every week. I know. Speak. We always spend the next two hours, don't we, like buzzing, <laughs> buzzing around the house with sort of enthusiasm and yeah. ideas. And Yeah. Leslie um, has has given us that, that buzz. And, it, well, we needed it this week, for goodness. You know, we've had such a tough week. But um, it, it really was a, a lift. And uh, uh, we wish her every success with that forthcoming novel and also uh, her relationship with Zaffa Books, which is very exciting indeed. And I'm sure we'll have her on the programme later on. We, now, we did promise, didn't we? We did, we did. <laughs> right, well, um, in terms of sort of our, uh, what we wanted to talk about beyond uh, that, we've got some great interviews coming up, by the way. Uh, we've got one or two lined up. We won't say too much, but next week we're talking to... Donna Morfitt who is known in the author community very widely because Donna is, well, a prolific interviewer of UK crime novels. She just loves UK crime and she loves authors and she's just passionate about it. She has boundless energy, doesn't she? Yes, she does. does. I'm I'm looking forward to talking to Donna. Absolutely. She gives a fantastic platform, you know, on a Facebook page uh, to to authors to talk about their craft and, well, what we do on this programme. But it's... uh, uh, it's you know it's a, she has a uh, a black book who's who list of uh, UK crime authors. It she feels. does, yeah. yeah. So it'll be a bit like a busman's holiday for her, I think, because she'll be on the other side of the of the microphone almost. Absolutely, Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have to think of some really tough questions. Mm, yeah, 
It's going to be an interesting week this week. No Olympic Games to distract me. Oh, what a shame. I've really quite enjoyed it. I mean, I don't think <laughs> necessarily the coverage has been as good as it could be. I think they settled into it. Um, but they nevertheless, the BBC, that is, suffered from the fact they couldn't show more than two live sports at any one time. And there were plenty of times when there were overlaps of people going for British medals and whatever else. But, you know, overall, given the problems that Tokyo had staging the games and no real fans being allowed in, yeah, there was enough atmosphere. There was, enough, you know, enough thrills and the camera angles are amazing and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Do you uh, know what I've enjoyed, though, about the Olympics? Well, two things. First thing, I enjoyed hearing the cicadas on the golf course because that took me back to the two years I lived there and it made me very nostalgic. Didn't care about the golf, the cicadas. Oh, I love those creatures. And the second thing, watching the amazing men jumping and spinning into water. I love diving. (laughs) (laughs) Not doing it, obviously, because I just sort of (laughs) fall into water. You you asked me the question, right? Why are they so buff? (laughs) After all they're doing is just falling in the water. But can you imagine the amount of core strength it requires to do all those twist turns and then hit the water with the minimum amount of splash and in the vertical? They are very, very good-looking individuals, has to be said. Yeah. And yeah. tiny pants too. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. With Union Jacks on the back. <laughs> some of them anyway yeah <laughs> but yeah i was very impressed i mean it you know i don't pay much attention to the olympics normally or sport in general but the skill in some of the sports that i've sat next to you while you've been watching the cycling as well i just i watch it almost goggle-eyed thinking how do how come they don't crash how do they go so fast how come they don't look well, they tired do. how, unfortunately they do crash and, and, and there the, are so many crashes on the track this time um some real horrific ones uh, and I've, I've been a big fan of track cycling for many years. Been to the velodrome. I went to the Olympics, obviously, uh, in London um, and and in Rio, and uh, saw track cycling there. But I've been to the World Championships in Manchester and uh, six day events and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I'm a lapsed cyclist, big time lapsed cyclist. But oh boy, if you think I'm into golf, you should see me when I get into cycling. It's it's frightening. Uh, but yeah, I have huge admiration for. Are you them. talking about you and your lycra? Yeah, there's a whole stack of it upstairs in the bedroom, which, um, <laughs> which is unused at the moment. And it was going to get used in Aaron, but there oh, we go again. I've touched oh, on that. No, 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 let's not go there. <laughs> no, it's too much. It's too much. Listen, we've um, we've discovered a real gem on the BBC iPlayer, which has provided us oh, great inspiration this week. Intellectual inspiration, yeah, very much so. There's a six-part uh, biographic series on Ernest Hemingway on the system it's an american made uh, documentary it's so beautifully done though oh it's great i love it and I, mean, I can't wait to watch the next bit what i what i find interesting i mean there's many things i find interesting but from purely a program technical point of view is did ernest hemingway spend his life posing for amazing black and white photos <laughs> because even as a little boy you know, they're almost. He was, he was ahead of his time. It was like he was followed by a fantastic camera taking amazing arty shots of him as a kid. Can you imagine him on Instagram through. now? Then? Absolutely, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. You know, that he's like a four, They've had so many wonderful black and white shots uh, of him uh, growing up, and then you know, going to the war, obviously in in, in the First World War as an avionics driver initially, and then you know 
suffering terrible wounds, 200-odd pieces of shrapnel taken out of him and two bullets in his feet, um, that sort of thing. And, and, and what an amazingly good-looking man he was. And uh, But th- his passion for writing in terms of the style which he adopted, that's stripping out the adornment, as he talks about in one of his letters, um, you know, so that the sentence is true. I went through, I've, I, I confess, in terms of my sort of writing, I went back through some of the stuff that I've written for my uh, long-fabled and yet-to-be-produced first novel. And I found myself stripping out just masses to get it, it's not just to tighten it up, but actually to deliver sentences that had less equivocation and, you know... They were much more direct, mm. and it was much, much more powerful. And I, I've taken great inspiration from that. I don't tend to be a Hemingway in any w- regard, but there are certain aspects of Hemingway's character which remind me of me a bit. And me too. So, you know, I, th- I think you're right there. And also, this, this, right, this is an interesting... Apart from the drinking, I don't do that. <laughs> All the, the deep-sea fishing. No, but the, the, no, there are similarities. And um, it, it, an interesting thing has come out of this. So you just sort of touched on it that it's made you look at your own writing and this to me says about something about the importance of reading and reading all sorts of things Ernest Hemingway wasn't known as a crime writer at all however you've got something from his style and his thoughts and his um you know what what he his sort of philosophy on yes, writing philosophy yeah for your own writing and indeed if yeah. you hadn't come across him you wouldn't have got that, and your well, I, writing may improve as a result. I think it will. I mean, I've got. I'm reading for whom the bell tolls now, um, and that is, yeah, it's interesting. So the, those those traits that they were talking about. One of the things that Hemingway did was that he was obsessed with doing everything the correct way, to the you know the best possible way, whether it's fishing, drinking, making <laughs> love, whatever they talk about. But there's a, a, in the first opening pages of for whom the bell tolls there's a conversation between the protagonist the american um young man who who's a, a uh, an explosive expert who's been tasked with blowing up a bridge uh, on behalf of the uh, the rebels and uh, the commander of the sort of brigade who's saying you have to do it a certain way i want it to be done perfectly the timing's got to be right on the money and you know no don't just blow it up blow it up perfectly <laughs> and it, you know so that theme comes through that's the sort of conversation the two men being sort of alpha males about blowing up bridges and it must be done properly and all that sort of thing i'm putting on a silly accent and actually the guy i think is uh that we're talking about the commander is is a, a communist from eastern europe somewhere okay um anyway I sort of digress, but, no, but it does, that's interesting, is it? He's put some of his own philosophy oh, in he, the character. Absolutely, his 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 determination. That's that's how he sees it, and he's reflecting the world as he saw it. So that's interesting. Now, I had um, many many years ago when I started when I went to journalism school, we used to have uh, lectures from a guy called Jeff Mungem, who, who's passed away sadly, not long after actually I left Cardiff, and he was fantastic. He was very much a sort of um, I think a left-wing uh, thinker on journalism he used to push us very hard to read Noam Chomsky. Oh gosh, that is highbrow. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I loved it. I love reading Noam Chomsky. No, that's good. I but love that. One of the other people he recommended we read um, in terms of fantastic um, journalism in the face of adversity 
was the writings of Martha Gellhorn. Now, Martha Gellhorn um, is famous for many, many reasons, but she's arguably the 20th century's greatest war correspondent, uh, certainly female war correspondent. And she put herself on the front line uh, in conflicts from the Spanish Civil War all the way through Vietnam and even the invasion of Grenada by Ronald Reagan's forces. And she was in her 80s, still going into conflict zones. Um, and she was an extremely beautiful woman, uh, and that kind of helped her in places because she managed to get to the Russian front against the, the, you know, the Germans in the Second World War. She was at the Battle of the Bulge, right in the middle of it, and describes... Yeah, I mean, it, it's fantastically well-written. It's, it's all about the human details, Mm. little tales you know little snaps of conversation um as well as the, the bigger picture stuff uh she went into night fighters at one stage she you know went up with a with a pilot and a two-seat night fighter you know a plane uh, vietnam she was right in the front line um she saw many people die and it won't surprise you to know she was married to ernest hemingway at one stage in fact for him the bell tolls is dedicated to her mm. now i took it she uh, you know we I'd never heard of her before this. So I bought The Face of War, which is uh, a collection of her war correspondence. It's fabulous at that stage. And it turned out she lived not that far from Cardiff, where I was studying. She was in Chepstow on the English-Welsh border. So I wrote to her and said, look, can I come and interview you? And I have a lovely little card that said, look, it was handwritten. It was quite spidery at this point. I, I'm, you know, thank you so much for your, your request. Um, you know, I... I am now in, she was in her 90s at this point. Her eyesight had failed. She was blind and she just felt too frail to 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 to, to be able to conduct the interview. But I still have that card. Mm. And I sort of feel this connection That's now. Precious. It is really precious. She was an extraordinary woman. And you'd have to be, you know, this is peak Hemingway we're talking about. <laughs> you know, the carousing, war-going, deep-sea fishing, hunting uh, version of, you know the myth if you like she lived with the myth of Hemingway mm. and coped with him um, and uh, she was an extraordinary woman I think his third wife uh, out of four and uh, yeah I mean there's lots of things to admire about Hemingway and lots of things to despise too but uh, he has been an inspiration this week and we'll continue to watch this series which is uh, on BBC iPlayer and then we're going to move on to the Richard E. Curtis um, travelogue um, program about books that have influenced him. He goes around Europe, uh, goes to Pompeii. I'd love, yes, um, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah. So there's some gems out there. And look, we're looking for gems at the moment <laughs> because we've got a lot of time. Uh, no, I mean, we're working hard. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's not so, so much we've got time, but we need, we need sort of diversion. diversion that's intellectual as well. We do. We do. You know, it's to compensate for the holiday that hasn't happened. I actually look forward to it. In the daytime, I think, oh, at least I'll get a bit of the Ernest Hemingway documentary later. Yeah, that helps. That helps. Well, listen, um, we've been moaning on, uh, you know, we're trying to take positives out of it, uh, as uh, as my old mucker, Michael Caine, would say. <laughs> use, use the difficulty. The... <laughs> Very good. Yeah, got to use the difficulty. And we're trying to do that. Um, but uh, hopefully next week, We'll be in a much more positive frame of mind uh, when we speak to Donna Morfitt. We're out in the wider world. As long as none of us get COVID beyond the two that already have got it, we're out again and able to go shopping. And so watch out, world, on Wednesday. On Wednesday. <laughs> uh, we can't wait. Um, and let's just keep fingers crossed that, you know, none of us get 
Uh, well, I am touching a wooden ch- chair leg at the Yeah. But anyway, thank you uh, for indulging us again on the Hobcast Book Show. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, to find out details of all our books, our authors. We've got 20% discount code if you put in Hobcast20 on our paperbacks. And uh, we'll be back again next week with another edition. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast. Uh, we've got had so many great interviews in, in recent weeks. Uh, and in fact, over the 30-show run, show 31 to follow next week so all we can say from rebecca and myself bye bye (laughs) bye bye (laughs) indeed have a great uh, safe and creative week you've been listening to the hobcast from hobeck books with adrian hobart and rebecca collins you can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net you can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.